In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool too. With an ice cold cold brew, and not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. The world is always on. But you shouldn't be. Put junk sleep to bed. At Mattress Firm's Black Friday Now Sale, save up to 60% on Sealy with queen mattresses starting at $279.99. Talk to a sleep expert today and unjunk your sleep. Welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. This week, we are joined again by Dad, and this is an episode which, uh, well, we had a bit of trouble with uh, last time. We recorded this episode, and it didn't didn't come out great with the, the um, we recorded it off, off the wrong microphones, <laughs> and ended up recording it off the microphone on the laptop. So, believe it or not, I actually know this story, Dad, <laughs> because... We've already been through yeah, it. We've been through it, but um, we, we'll do it. We'll we'll make sure we get it get it down this time. And we've we've checked it, double checked it. It's all working. So uh, this is uh, this is your your episode on uh, Amelia Earhart. So who is Amelia Earhart, and why are we doing an episode on her? She is probably the world's most famous aviatrix. Okay. See, now this might just be me and. Please, no hate mail coming from this. But whenever I hear that I've got a female pilot, I sort of buckle my seatbelt a little bit harder. Now that might... <laughs> so, you know, a famous female uh, pilot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I might be on my own here and I'm probably going to get loads of hate mail because yeah. I know we have got... It's a word you don't come across very often. Do no, you? no. A- aviator, male. Aviatrix, female. Yep. Yeah. So in, in the world of being politically incorrect. Yes. <laughs> as yeah. we are now. Okay, this podcast is going to be about an extremely famous woman and a woman of her time and one of aviation's most, well, long-term mysteries, I would have thought. Yeah. I'll give you first, like I always do, uh, a brief outline of who Amelia was and uh, what she achieved and the known facts about her final flight. Okay. Um, And then we'll end with the three main theories of what could have happened. And there are three. Yes. Well, I mean, technically, there's about... 15 if you want to go right into the they all fall into the they fall under three yeah it depends how much you like your conspiracies oh and we all know i like my conspiracies don't we yeah it's exactly the opposite to me (laughs) you are unbelievable with those yeah (laughs) right i can see your eyes rolling when i talk even on the phone i can be like you're going oh for god's sake yeah here's another one yeah well i really (laughs) don't believe in conspiracy theories no uh, just like I don't believe in lots of other things. No, exactly. We might come on to that in another yes, episode. I'm sure we will. <laughs> We've definitely got uh, got one coming up. There has a, there's been a few questions. So uh. okay, All right. So who was Amelia Earhart? Well, Amelia was born on the 24th of July 1847 uh, in a place called Atchison, Kansas. And although she was born in the U.S., her family were actually German. Well, of German descent. Yeah. And due her, due, during her early years, she was a what they'd call a tomboy. And she enjoyed doing things that, according to her parents, were not ladylike. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and to be honest, throughout her life, she never, ever changed this 
this image. Mm. So, in 1907, when she was 10, she saw her first aircraft. Okay. All right. Now, you have to realize that it was only four years previous mm. that the Wright brothers had actually taken off. Yeah, and that was very primitive. Yeah, and, um, and they'd taken off in the Wright Flyer. Uh, and she described this aircraft as a thing of rust and wire, which did not interest her at all. Okay. So she wasn't exactly interested in aircraft. No. Well, I suppose at 10 years old, when they're mm. that primitive, they probably weren't overly impressive. Now, 1917, she trained as a nurse. Um, well, trained as a nurse's aide uh, for the Red Cross at a place called Spadina Military Hospital in Toronto, Canada, uh, where she actually uh, tended the wounded soldiers from the First World War. And it was there she started to get her interest in flying. Uh, she was fascinated by the stories being told by the injured airmen of the Royal Canadian Flying Corps and about their exploits that, you know, well above the ground. Mm. Uh, and she was still working in the hospital when the Spanish flu hit in uh, Canada in 1918. Yeah. And uh, she sort of uh, survived all of that. But uh, November 1918, she uh, started suffering from pneumonia. Right. And something called maxillary cyanotosis. Yeah. Sinusist. Yeah. One of them. One of them. Google it. <laughs> I'll Google it. Yeah, I can't pronounce it. Uh, um, and it left her with sinus-related pain and pressure around one eye. Okay. And that resulted in sort of a constant, like, runny nose. Yeah, okay. Some mucus. Um, and it all drained via her nose and her throat. And over the years, she had several operations, but she always suffered from headaches throughout the whole of her life. Um, and it did actually have an effect on her flying activities later on. I say, I know the feeling of headaches throughout life. I've got three kids, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you want any confirmation of that, you can actually see evidence of it in some of her photographs where she can be seen wearing a bandage over her cheek. And that's because she had a small drainage tube fitted. Oh, right. Okay. So, you know, she wasn't, uh, she was not. The the uh, she wasn't the most healthy person in the world. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the way I yeah, that's the way I would put it. So, nineteen twenty, <clears throat> she returned from Canada to the U to the U.S. with her parents, and it was in December that year that her life actually changed. In fact, it was between Christmas and New Year that year. Uh, on the twenty eighth of December, Amelia and her father went to an airfield at Long Beach, and. Uh, well, she conned her father into a $10, 10-minute 10 flight. $10 uh, in when 1920s? Yep. That's that's a lot. Yeah, it's a that's lot That uh, must be like maybe two, $300 now, something like that. Mm -hmm. When she got a 10-minute flight, and she said, by the time I had got two or 300 feet off the ground... I knew I had to fly. Okay. So she, at the very, at that age, at that time, she wanted to be a pilot. Women weren't doing much in those days. No. You know, they, 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 they just weren't. It just wasn't the thing to do. So uh, she had her first lesson on the 3rd of January the following year, in 1921, at a place called Kinner Field, near Long Beach. And after only 10 hours of instruction, she went solo and gained her pilot's license later that year. And she then started to set aviation records. That's okay. a time when record breaking was sort of the started. thing to do. It yeah. just sort of started. So it was the thing that everybody wanted to do was to break records. And you're talking 1920s is almost the... The start, almost, of the suffragettes. So, the start of women yeah. getting the right to vote and things like that. So, to have a female putting themselves out there like this, and that's time, is going to be quite pioneering as well. Mm. I mean, she, she very soon started to set aviation records. She was the first woman 
to reach 14,000 feet altitude. Now, that doesn't sound very much nowadays because airliners like travel 35, 40,000 yeah. feet. But 14,000 feet in an open cockpit with no oxygen, unpressurized, you know, it's just amazing. Yeah, that's... Yeah. And uh, she actually gained her international pilot's license in 1923. Okay. And she was only the 16th woman in the world to do so. Okay, so she wasn't... Okay, that's that. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm quite surprised that she would be that high up on the list. You know what I mean? With her being so famous, you'd have almost expected her to well, be the yeah, first or the second. Wasn't, she wasn't famous... She wasn't famous at that at point. At that point, you know. Yeah, that's true. So, um, but she was fast becoming a celebrity. Okay. Um, and she was setting records and promoting women's achievements and everything else. 1928 was a sort of defining year for Amelia. Uh, a, a lady called Philip Guest. She owned an aircraft. Okay. Right. And she wanted to be the first woman to fly non-stop across the Atlantic. Now, so many people had attempted this particular flight and failed. In fact, it had only been achieved by Alcock and Brown in 1919 and by Charles Lindbergh the year before in 1927 when he completed his flight solo. Since okay. then... Since 1927, 20 other pilots had also attempted solo crossing, the solo crossing across the Atlantic, and not one had survived. Okay. But this Amy Amy Phipps guest, she wanted to be the first one. She wanted to be the first one. Okay. Now, although this Amy owned the plane her family objected to her going. Yes, I can understand so, why. So as a result, she contacted a gentleman called George Putman. He was a publisher, and he was instructed to find the right sort of girl for the trip. Okay. Amelia was the right so sort of girl, and she signed up for the flight. Okay. So, so she's... Yeah. So the 17th of June... 1928, Amelia Earhart climbed on board a Fokker F7 float plane with two other people, Vilma Stultz and Lou Gordon. The plane left Newfoundland on the flight across the Atlantic. And to be honest, with George Putman around, there was a vast amount of publicity attached to the event. Mm. And the majority of people just believed they wouldn't make it and would end up disappearing over the Atlantic like so many others. 20 hours and 40 minutes later, the three-engined Fokker landed at Berry Point in Wales in the UK. Wow. I mean, that's that's a long time, but then they're not travelling very fast, are they? No. And, to you know, to make Wales as well, that's flown over Ireland, so mm. well, they all... could have downed it earlier than that. Although Amelia had been promised some time at the controls of the aircraft, she was never actually given the opportunity. She became the first woman to cross the Atlantic non-stop by air. But not the first pilot. Yeah, yeah, not the first female. So she did actually get the chance to, to fly the plane from where it landed in Berry Point, Wales, over to Southampton in England. So uh, the trip made Amelia world famous. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, it's been publicised as well. Yeah. And when she got back to the US, uh, she became involved with George Putman. Okay. The publicist. He helped her improve her flying skills, and he assisted her on a lecture tour around the US, mm -hmm. uh, basically to promote the air industry and to encourage more women to become pilots, even then. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Um, it was during this time that Amelia formed a group called the 99s. Okay. Now, that 99s still exists. That group still exists today. Wow. And that group is Women Pilots. It's an association of women pilots called the 99s. Yep. In fact, George Putman and Amelia got so close together, they actually married 
1931. Okay. So, uh, so it became wasn't just a yeah. She didn't just see him as a a means to extend her career. It became no, and uh, Amelia cemented her place in history on the twentieth of May, nineteen thirty-two, when uh, she took off from Newfoundland in a single-engine Vega, and uh, it was a fifteen and a half-hour flight solo across the Atlantic and she was the first woman to actually do it. So she did get her first woman to fly across the Atlantic. Wow. So she she did do it. She did do it in the end, yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's not bad. Uh, Just just a little bit about that one. When she landed, she landed in a cow field in Londonderry in Ireland and uh, she got approached by uh, the farmer um, who asked her if she'd actually flown a long way. And she answered with one word, America. <laughs> uh, she became the most famous aviatrix in the world and started clocking up speed records, distance records, altitude, altitude records. I mean, it didn't hurt that her husband was a, a wealthy publicist. But, yeah, I can imagine. You know, <laughs> she even got one of those American ticker tape parades through new york around the time of her 38th birthday amelia started to realize that she couldn't just go on breaking records forever but there was one left that she wanted to complete and it's going to be the hardest one of all yeah Uh, she wanted to fly round the world at its widest point so around the equator okay now you can't fly in those days directly around the equator because you've got to stop so it's got to be a kind of a zigzag yeah i don't think you could now either to be Um, honest i don't know i wonder if there is a plane out there that can probably is but yeah this is a major thing that she was looking at doing and she knew that in order to do it she needed a big aeroplane and the one she chose and actually bought was a lockheed 10e electra she bought it herself she bought it Right. Uh, bearing in mind, she's married to uh, the extremely wealthy publicist, and yeah. she's got a lot of money from breaking records and, and yeah. all the bits that go with it. Um, and, and the Electra was the most advanced aircraft of its time. It was an all-metal construction. It was twin-engined. It was a monoplane. Uh, it was an enclosed cockpit. It was like, you know, it, it was a... Yeah, really aeroplane looking aeroplane. If it was going to be done, it was the best one of the time. Yes. She had the interior modified and she fitted a kind of basic autopilot so she could actually take the hands off the throttle. Uh, She had extra fuel tanks fitted to it. And that basically, with all the modifications, she could get a range of about 4,000 miles. Wow. Uh, and that would be at a height of about 4,000 feet. Okay. So it's not overly high off the ground, but I suppose you don't need to be, do you? It's, nope. There and wasn't that's, the... that's plenty yeah. plenty enough to make the trip. But the biggest problem in a flight around the world is navigation, yeah. and especially across the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, where it all looks the same. Yeah. I mean, today we live in a world gps satellite navigation and you can direct a person to anywhere in the world within a few meters yeah 1936 that's completely different Mm. you're flying over the sea it's featureless it's extremely difficult and most of the navigation that was done in that time was done on dead reckoning a compass a sextant uh, and celestial knowledge if you're flying at night right and 1936, uh, radar had only been invented the year before. It was invented in 1935. So right. that was basically non-existent as well. Yeah. There was nothing other than her knowledge. Yeah, basically. And, 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 and you know what dead reckoning is, don't you? I've heard of it, but I... Okay, basically it's we're travelling at, say, 100 miles an hour. Mm. And we've travelled... For four hours. For four hours, we must have travelled four hundred miles. Four hundred miles. Just a guess. Yeah, yeah. Which on, doesn't on, account for on wind speed. And, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's dead. That's called dead reckoning. 
Yeah. All I right. mean, it's it's almost there or thereabouts, but essentially it's a guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a sextant measures the height of the sun. Yes. So therefore you can work out your position from that during the day. No sun during the day. Uh, no night. sun during the day. No sun at night. Um, so you have to rely on the stars, which is your celestial knowledge part. Yeah. Okay. I could tell you where the North Star is, but that's about it. It's, it's in the North. Yeah. <laughs> Near me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, all the preparations. March 1937, Amelia starts goes to make an attempt to circumnavigate the world using her Electra. She had a crew of four people. There was, obviously, Amelia... There was a co-pilot, Paul Mance, her navigator, a gentleman called Fred Noonan, and a second navigator, a gentleman called Harry Manning, who, to be honest, happened to be, at the time, one of the West best radio operators of the era. Okay, that's always a good thing to have with you. Yeah, um, Fred Noonan was a, a very competent navigator. He'd spent 22 years in the U.S. Navy before even becoming an aviator. Yeah, well, you've got to be um, good in the Navy. To... His, his skill was celestial, so he was fantastic with the stars, and that's going to pr- prove absolutely invaluable to Amelia. Yeah. There's only one problem with Fred Noonan. He was a drinker. Okay. Um, and, and in fact, he had been known to be able to go through a whole bottle of whiskey in a single day. Amelia's plan was to travel from east to west. So she was going to start in Oakland, California, with the first stop being 2,400 miles away in Hawaii. So she was going across the Pacific. Oh, okay. That's not the way I would have thought, seeing as yeah. she's already done the trip to Ireland. Yeah. I would have thought that would... Okay, fair enough. So she's going... She's it's decided, journey, she's decided to go the other way. <laughs> Now, it's not an easy first leg. In fact, 1934, uh, a pilot called Charles Ulm had spoken to Earhart just before he embarked on a round-the-world flight. And he was going that route as well. Charles and his crew were never, ever seen again. And they disappeared somewhere over the Pacific. Ah. So in the same journey that she's just about to About to take, they disappeared. Right. The plan was for Noonan to navigate from... Hawaii to to a place called Howland Island, mm-hmm. and then Manning would continue with Earhart on to Australia, and she would proceed on her own for the remainder of the flight around the world. Right. So she that only was, needed them for that, that for that part. that part because that's the rest the, of that's it's overland. The, yeah. Yeah. So on the seventeenth of March, nineteen thirty-seven, it was was dull overcast it had been raining for about three hours and the four of them boarded the electra the weather on that day had grounded all commercial flights out of the airfield and the crowd that had originally waited for this world record attempt to start had long gone home they'd got wet they'd got miserable they'd, they'd had enough yeah so that left amelia's husband george putman a gentleman called William Miller, who was the uh, U.S. Superintendent of Air Commerce, to just watch the takeoff. <laughs> right, okay. So the Electra took off in the rain and headed out towards Oahu, which is in Hawaii. Yeah. One hour into the flight, Amelia takes a photograph of a Pan American flying boat that had left about an hour before. Okay, so she's caught up with that, and she's caught up with that. Funnily enough, this exact aircraft was called the Hawaiian Clipper, and it disappeared a year later in 1938 with the loss of all 15 on board on the same route. So this is really a dangerous route to take. Yeah, flying in those days just wasn't the safest as as well as it's nowhere nearly as safe as it is now. At 20 to 6 in the morning, and after 16 hours of flight, Paul Mance landed the Electra at Wheeler Army Field, Army Airfield in Hawaii. So, awesome. So, she so made- they've, they've made Hawaii. During the stopover, the plane was checked out, and it was found that actually the, the engine's propeller bearings were actually suffering from a lack of lubrication. It had to be um, flown over to uh, Ford Island for repair and refueling. 
So okay. had to even that short jump to Hawaii had caused problems with the engines. Ford Island, it's it's where the Japanese will attack the Pacific Fleet five years later. Pearl Harbor. Ah. I didn't know it was called Ford Island. No, yeah. Considering I'd done an episode on Pearl Harbor, I'm surprised I didn't actually know that was the name of that particular island. But Ah, there you go. Well the island is called Oahu, but Ford oh. Ford Island is the um the one of the islands. Yeah. The next destination is 1,900 miles away. It's a very, very small island called Howland. Okay. And when I say small, it is small. When you look at it on the map, it looks like a fat cucumber lying north to south. It is less than 6,500 feet long. It is 1,600 feet wide, and it is only 640 acres in size. Okay. We've got fields bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very small speck in a very, very big ocean. Yeah, it's not an easy one to hit. Now, Manning, who was the only skilled radio operator in the crew, uh, he made arrangements to use something called radio direction finding. And they were going to use that to home in on the island. Uh, Compared to today, it's just not anything you'd do but yeah but in those days in those days it would have worked so just before dawn on the 20th of march 1937 the electra makes its way to the end of the runway it's got 900 gallons of fuel Mm -hmm. the engines go up to speed and as the, the sun starts to rise it starts its takeoff run okay now witnesses say that the plane spun around breaking the right undercarriage strut on yeah. takeoff. Yeah. It's appeared Amelia made a mistake on takeoff and and that's caused what's known as a ground loop. It's where one wing lifts causes the other wing tip to go down, hit the ground spinning the aircraft. Told you, female pilots. <laughs> In the main, it's caused yeah, it's caused by pilot error. Yeah. You know, Amelia Earhart was actually blamed for this crash. I mean, some people tried to sort of put a, a different spin on it, saying, oh, no, one of the tyres burst just prior to takeoff. But it crashed, and the consensus of opinion was she, she screwed it. it up. Yeah. Yeah. The plane was damaged. Nobody was injured. That's good. And there was no fire, despite 900 gallons of fuel. Okay. So that's not bad going. No, it's not. Uh, the, uh, it was so badly damaged the round-the-world attempt was over. That's it. It's not going to happen. So Um, she's stuck in Hawaii. Yeah. Now, Manning, he had um, taken a leave of absence from his job, and he was with the US Navy, and his leave of absence was taken to do that particular flight with Amelia Earhart. He told Amelia that his leave would run out before she could ever make a second attempt. Right, so she's lost her... Radio Man. Yeah. Now, that's what he told her at the time. Uh, and he he basically ended his association with the trip. Well, that left her with Noonan. Neither, neither her or Noonan were radio operators. The okay. other gentleman was a co-pilot. She decided that that was it, didn't need a co-pilot. Okay. In later years, that's after all of the events that had happened, Manning would say... He felt that there were too many problems and delays and he'd actually lost faith in Earhart's ability as a pilot. Okay. Um, so she hadn't not only lost a skilled radio operator, but he was also a pilot who could have helped her and he was a navigator. Okay. So he would have been invaluable, really. Yeah. So, Do you think it could have had something to do with the fact that she couldn't get the plane off the ground properly? Possibly, but she was by then a very skilled. Yeah, you know, so she was a skilled pilot. Yeah, she wasn't a, a novice, was she? No, but, but um, she's got problems now because she's got no plane, no radio operator, and only one navigator. But she's decided she was still determined to complete this dream of being the first person to fly around the world. The Electra was sent back to the factory for repairs, and Amelia used up her entire personal fortune to pay for it what to get it fixed yeah okay 
and she planned a second attempt to fly around the world, but this one she knew had to succeed. Yeah. She's got no money now. I mean, to be fair, in her defence, if she I know she spent her entire fortune there to get it done. If she does make it, she's made that money back. Oh, yeah. yeah and, and more. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So it's, it's a do-or-die situation, isn't it? Mm. It took 60 days to repair the plane. Right. And make it ready for the second attempt. The manufacturers did a couple of changes to the aircraft. Okay. They, they fixed a radio antenna and a direction finding loop were both fitted on the upper surface of the aircraft. And they also fitted what they call a trailing aerial antenna on the underneath of the aircraft. Okay. Now, these modifications give the aircraft's radio a range of 2,000 miles. That's good. Yeah. That is that, I'm assuming that's better than what it was. Far better. Yeah. So it's important. To have. And they considered this to be a major safety improvement. Yeah. Now... Those 60 days had caused a change in the sort of global weather and the wind started blowing the other way. Okay. So Amelia takes this into account and decides she's going to go the opposite way round the world, west to east, which is what you said in the first place. She's already gone from America to Ireland and so she's going to say, yeah. Yeah, so now she's going back to America, across America and then into... Yeah. Yeah. Um, It wouldn't be... Too much of a difference. The distance is still the same. The stops are still going to be the same. But it just meant that the longest and most dangerous part of her journey would now come at the end of the attempt and not at the start. Oh, from the... Across the Pacific. The Pacific. And to the... Oh, was she, so did she start from Hawaii then on the second attempt? Or did she get it back to California? She, she went go. from America to Hawaii. Yeah. To Howland Island. Yeah. It was where she, which is the route she was going to go. Yeah, yeah. And this were this time she was going the other way. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So they've got they're back in California and they're going yeah. east. Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to work it out. I've got almost like trying to picture a globe in my head. But yeah, mm-hmm. I can see what. So they yeah they're going from. Yeah. Go on. Carry yeah. on. So <laughs> her flight started on the 20th of May 1937, but unlike the first one, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't exactly done in secret, but it wasn't publicised. Yeah. Um, and that's a bit surprising, given that her, husband her husband's occupation. And, it, uh, and the, to be honest, despite all the research I've done, it's not clear why she did that. No. But uh, Earhart and Noonan took off from Oakland, California. And it took them three days to fly to Miami in Florida. Mm-hmm. Once in Miami, that's when she publicly announces she's going to go for this world record. Okay. Now, she's got rid of her radio operator. Yeah. Or rather, he's left. So that leaves Earhart and um, Noonan, and they're not good at Morse code. Nor am I. Right. So basically, Amelia knew this, and, and she got rid of the telegraph key and the transmitter from her aircraft because it's dead weight. She can't use it. She doesn't know how to. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And and Noonan didn't know how to operate it correctly. So you get, you know, ditch it. I'm it assuming makes... this was quite heavy. I would have thought so, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was going to say, if it's the weight of a mobile phone, it would have been pretty pointless to throw yeah. out. But, yeah, I'm assuming it's got a bit of weight to it. Yeah. Now, <laughs> when she was looking at the weight of the aircraft, she decided that she was also going to ditch the trailing antenna. The one underneath the aircraft. The one that's given her the extra range. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that would have allowed her to use a particular frequency, which is a 500 kilocycle marine frequency. Her plan was to communicate by voice at a higher frequency. Okay. So she's chosen a higher frequency, and she's going to communicate by voice. She doesn't need the the the, the, the trailing antenna, and she's got rid of the uh, the Morse code part of the radio. Okay. Well, the Morse code thing I kind of understand, but I'm not too sure about the. Mm. Yeah. Well, like these two decisions are going to be important. Very, very significant. All right. 
There were also rumours that Noonan was drinking heavily during the preparations. And to be honest, it may have been a contributing factor in Manning actually leaving. You know, I'm not going to make the journey without him. But realising that the pair only had a basic knowledge of radio lessons, they were both given radio lessons on how to operate the radio equipment and the radio finding direction equipment. Yeah. So the direction finder. Uh, Earhart just wasn't interested. She, she she didn't really, you know, her, she wanted to fly and that was it. She wasn't bothered about the radio. Um, and she was more concerned with the publicity of the, the the actual attempt and flying the aircraft than, than operating the radio. She, she really wasn't interested in that. At Noonan, well, turns out he just didn't give a shit. He was the navigator. Yeah. So he never bothered to learn anything. You know, he might have attended the lessons, but he didn't learn anything. Yeah, they just sat at the back. That the day after her arrival in Miami, Amelia contacted her husband, and she said there are radio issues and personnel unfitness. There's only two of them, so she's not talking about herself, is she? That's all that's ever listed. They nobody's. I can't find what these things were, but a lot of historians have equated this to um, Noonan actually drinking, but it's never fully explained as to why. Makes sense. Uh, Whatever these problems were, Amelia just didn't let them affect her plans, and she and Noonan took off from Lay on the 2nd of July at 10 a.m. local times. It's 10 a.m. in the morning. Mm -hmm. She took off from Lay. She had 7,000 miles to go. So Lay is one of the last bits of this journey. She's got most of the way around the world. Yeah. It's near Australia, isn't it? It's in that area, yeah, yeah. So she's going from there now to Howland Island, from Howland Island to Oahu, and Oahu back to California. She's that, done. That's it, yeah. So she's got 7,000 miles to go to complete around the world. The next stop on her journey was Howland Island. It is 2,200 miles away from Leigh. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a very, very small bit of land in the middle of the ocean. There was a refueling stop on Howland Island, and the fuel was already there waiting for her. That's good. Alongside the island and sitting there was a United States Coast Guard cutter. It was called the USS Itasca. Funnily enough, that's the same ship that was there when she made the first attempt. Right, okay. The Electra had over 900 gallons of fuel when it took off from, from Ley. Ley is in New Guinea, by the way. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's not far from Australia. No, it's not. No. The fuel was expected to last the whole journey and have several hours to spare. That's good. And this is based on the winds that, that they'd calculated. The downside of this is on the day, the winds were actually stronger than they'd expected. And they were actually headwinds and not tailwinds. Okay. So, but still, it should be enough. Should still be plenty. Obviously, this is going to increase the fuel consumption of the aircraft. But Fred Noonan was one of the best nighttime navigators in the world at the time. Downside, there was no celestial dome on the Electra. So he couldn't see the stars? From the top of the aircraft. That's not really helpful if you've got a nighttime navigator and no way to see the stars yeah. for him to navigate. You, you add this to the fact that the side windows on the Electra were obscured by the fuel tanks that had been fitted, the extra ones. It's going to make his observations just that little bit more difficult. Yeah. 14 hours and 15 minutes into this flight, the Atasca receives the first message from Earhart. It's slightly garbled. It's a long way away, but it says cloudy weather. Now, <laughs> you've got to think, that's the message that the Atasca received. If they were flying through clouds, he's not going to see the stars. No, he's not. Yeah. So even in the small window that he's got in the cockpit to see, he's not going to see. No. And he'd have to work on dead reckoning and and, and the compass bearings. <laughs> and they're not accurate. No. They're not accurate nowadays, but they were certainly not accurate then. No. 
On Howland Island, they had fitted a direction finder, which under normal circumstances when operating, gives sends out a radio signal, like a line, and the aircraft picks it up. I think that's what the direction finder does. Yeah. yeah? The line. Yeah. Now, it doesn't tell you how far down that line you are, but it will tell you you're on that line and heading towards somewhere. Yeah, which is enough for them to get to the runway. The um, battery-powered radio direction thing on Howland Island didn't work. Oh, brilliant. By the time Earhart's plane was due to reach the island, the battery had uh, had failed. It had gone flat. Right, okay. Uh, There was an additional direction finder on the Itasca, so they had a backup. Yep. And that wasn't battery-powered. And it was uh, that's the one they were going to use. But the frequency on which this particular one operated was different to the one on the island. Yeah, because it's a ship. Yeah. This one is 500 kilocycles marine. Yeah, I've heard that before. It's the <laughs> frequency of the aerial that Earhart ditched before she took off. Yeah, okay, so had she have kept that... She would have been able to hear the Itasca's direction finder. It wasn't expected to be a problem, but she ditched the air, She ditched that aerial, so she couldn't... There was no way. If you can't, if you can't pick up the signal, you're not going to hear it. No. Now, the Itasca, the Itasca was already on station in Howland when Earhart ditched the aerial. So, so they, didn't they didn't know she couldn't use that frequency. And Earhart was due to transmit on this is a technical part of it some of your listeners will, will, will know a lot more about the technical side of things but what she was going to do is she was going to transmit at 3105 kilohertz at night but during the hours of daylight she was going to switch to 6210 kilohertz okay. so it's just switching the, the radio frequencies between daylight and night time mm-hmm. the Atasca could transmit on 3,105, but only had Morse code on 6,210, not voice capacity. So she could talk to them at night, but not during the day? Or they Cor- could hear her at night, but not during the day? They could... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. So during the day, she and was she's flying she's ditched blind. the Morse code key. I mean, she wouldn't have known the Morse code anyway, and no. it would come through. But there we are. That's presented a bit of a problem. Because unfortunately, it's going to be daylight when she's due to arrive. Oh, shit. <laughs> right, so, okay. So if it was nighttime, she'd probably be... Could have been all right, but... The Atasca first hears Amelia Earhart at 6.14 hours when she claimed to be 200 miles out. The reception is poor. 7.42, Earhart's contacted the Atasca. We must be on you, but we cannot see you. Fuel is running low, being unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. And the ship can't reply? The ship tried to reply, but the aircraft didn't hear it, or if they did, they didn't reply to it. There were several other garbled messages that were received, and each one was louder than the previous one. So she's getting closer. Mm. Just before 8 o'clock in the morning, Earhart's radio message says to the Itasca, we are circling but cannot see island, cannot hear you. They reported that they'd received the cutter's signals but they're unable to obtain a minimum for the bearing. So they've got a, a direction finder on the aircraft. It's a, if you look at the aircraft, it'll have like what looks like a, a, lo, a, a circle on top. Mm-hmm. And that's turned... When you hear a radio message, you turn it until you get the biggest, the, the loudest or the weakest signal. Yeah. That then gives you a heading. That's the heading you follow. So the aircraft's got its own kind of direction finder. Yeah. Yeah, Amelia sense. Earhart didn't know how to use it. She'd ignored the lessons. Brilliant. The signal was that loud that the radio operator in the Atasca came out on deck expecting to see the aircraft overhead. That's how loud she was. She's in the area. 8.43, the Itasca receives another message. They are on a line, 157337. That's a heading. Yep. 
So she is now travelling a line, running north and south, but she didn't give where on that line she was. No, well, that, that line goes all the way around the globe, so it doesn't really help. No, it doesn't, <laughs> but that's what she said. This was the last that the Itasca heard from Earhart and Noonan. They'd been in the air for 20 hours, 45 minutes. The weather around Howland Island was clear. There were clouds about 30 miles to the northwest. And if Earhart had flown into the clouds and bad weather along the way, it would have prevented Noonan from taking sightings that he needed to navigate precisely. The charts he was using were a couple of miles out. Not 30 miles, obviously, but they were a couple of miles out. And nobody actually knows what happened on that flight. Mm. But the Electra, along with Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, disappeared and were never seen again. Okay. Even to this day? Even to this day. So they still don't know, really, what happened? No. I mean, prior to her, to her departure... Amelia Earhart told the Itasca what frequency she'd been using. She told them to send only voice messages to her. She told them what times she would be transmitting and what times she would be listening. So she said she would receive on the hour and the half hour and she would transmit at quarter to and quarter past. Yep. She told them she would be using Greenwich Mean Time, not local time. She asked that they send signals on 7,500 kilohertz for her to home in on. And she specifically asked if that frequency would be okay. So that's what she actually went through before the Itasca left and took up station. What the Itasca didn't say to her was it would be impossible for them to take bearings on the frequency that she said she would be transmitting on. They didn't tell her that 7,500 kilohertz was too high a frequency for efficient direction finding. They ignored her request for voice-only messages and switched to Morse code. They sent most of their in, her, um, their in-flight transmissions to her in that medium. Brilliant. You would have thought, with Noonan being a navigator on a ship in the Navy for 20-odd years, that he would know Morse code. He probably knew a little bit. Yeah. But he wasn't a radio operator. No. I mean, the Itasca also ignored uh, her stipulation that the radio was scheduled to use Greenwich Mean Time, and that caused all sorts of confusion. It's a crucial factor. The radio wasn't used properly. So she was basically dead reckoning the entire way to the Mm -hmm. island. And there's proof that it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> she's gone missing. The, 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 the States launched a massive air and sea search for her. And it was the largest air and sea search in history to that point. And it didn't stop. It carried on for 18 months. Wow. Um, until January 1939, when uh, they, they were both declared dead. Now, the Navy ran an investigation, and the Navy's investigation concluded that the Electra ran out of fuel and crashed into the sea. In fact, one of the messages actually said that she was running low on fuel. Yeah, so it's not beyond the realms of possibility. Yeah. In the years since, there have been two other theories about what happened to her. Yeah. So you've got the Navy's theory, and that's the conclusion of the investigation. The first one, which is one you are so going to love, the repairs to the Electra weren't funded by Amelia Earhart. They were funded by the US government on condition she carried out a spy mission to see what the Japanese were doing in the area. Uh, Their their plane was blown off course towards the Marshall Islands and Amelia and Fred were captured by the Japanese, held prisoner and died in captivity. Okay. I mean, I like that. I do. But I can see one big problem with that. And that was that the Japanese didn't invade America or didn't attack Pearl Harbor until 1941. Yeah. So there would make no point for her to be spying. 
Well, that's it. I mean, yeah. I, f- I find that one difficult or to believe. Even if the even if she was spying, why the Japanese would have known that and then captured? No, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it was 1942, yeah, yeah, yeah I, could, then I, I could buy potentially, that. Potentially, but... yeah. I I find it difficult to believe, mainly because for such a large secret to be kept for 75 years, it's nigh on impossible. And like you just said, it was four and a half years before Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. And Japan just wasn't a threat to America at that particular time. No, exactly. Now, there is something that cropped up during the research. just quickly, um, Japan actually would would have been way too busy at this point because the war... um, I I alluded to it in one of one of my last episodes, but the Second World War. To uh, when did the Second World War start? What year? It started nineteen thirty nine. No, it uh, didn't. Started nineteen thirty seven, when Japan invaded China. China. Yeah. So yeah, I mean the European the European theater started yeah, in thirty nine. Japan so, was yeah. way too busy at this point to be caring about. Uh, you know, a, a woman yeah. attempting a world record. I, I suppose if you go to Japanese into, but uh, I'd call that a local war between mm. Japan and China. Well, that's one of the reasons why they attacked Pearl Harbor because the Americans were running missions mm. to help the Chinese. Mm. But I mean, that's another story. A, a few years ago, a photograph cropped up to show uh, a, a group of people on uh, on a jetty, and they said oh no it looks like amelia Earhart and fred noonan yeah <laughs> now i've seen that picture yeah it wasn't that that photograph was taken several years before they they disappeared and it wasn't of them anyway no it wasn't was it and it wasn't even on the same jetty as it was that people said it was either no so yeah okay now so that's two theories yeah ran out of fuel crashed in the ocean captured by the japanese mm-hmm. there's a third then a third one is Amelia managed to land the plane on a deserted island and died there. Yeah, this is the one I've heard. And that you, there are variations to this as well. Mm. I mean, is it possible? Yes. Yes, and here's why. After the 1st of July 1937, Fred Noonan and Amelia Earhart were never seen again. But was she heard from? Hmm. Only hours after her last transmission, reports started coming in from all around the Pacific from people claiming to hear distress signals supposedly coming from her aircraft. The reports would eventually number over 100, and they came from professional radio operators and later from amateurs with shortwave radio sets. They came from places all around the Pacific Uh, and across the US and over a time scale of several days. Due to the sheer number of reports, the Navy, the United States Navy, and the news media, they took these reports very seriously. They analysed every reported word for clues about where she might be. And if these were to be real, then the conclusion was Amelia must have landed the Electra somewhere. Because in order to transmit, the Electra needed battery power. To charge the battery, it had to be in a position to run the right-hand engine. This aircraft had two engines, one on each wing. Mm -hmm. The right-hand one was the one that did the charging of the batteries. Now, if if she was able to keep the battery charged, the engine had to be able to be run, which meant that the propeller had to be out of the water. Okay. Makes sense. On the 3rd of July... The day after she disappeared, signals believing to have come from her were picked up by a Pan Am direction finder station at Wake Island. They were also picked up on Midway Island and Oahu in Hawaii. Right. They did a triangulation of these three signals and it intersected on the Phoenix Islands in the South Pacific. Yep, I've heard of them islands. Yeah, I would hope so. Now, one of these islands, one of the islands in the Phoenix Islands, was called Gardner Island, and it was and still is uninhabited. It's now called Nikamaruru. Now, one of her final messages to the Itasca 
Amelia stated she was travelling on the compass bearing 157337. That goes through Howland Island, but if you continue it on south, it goes through Nicomaruru, 350 miles south of Howland. Right. There is a large shallow reef on the south of this island that has a shipwreck on it. Right. This is relevant. Yeah. Now, it wasn't only the Pan Am radio stations that reported hearing distress signals. Amateur radio listeners did as well. And they include a 16-year-old called uh, Donna Randolph. And she was in Rock Spring, Wyoming. She heard Amelia saying she was on a reef south of the equator. Now, these people didn't know anything. Mm. You know, the newspapers were not that quick. They didn't know anything. So Yes, it's only a few days after, isn't it? It is. In St. Stephen's, New Brunswick, in Canada... A woman says she heard Amelia's voice saying that her navigator was severely injured. That sounds a bit far-fetched, from Canada to the South Pacific. You say that. On those radio waves, Mm -hmm. it's unlikely. But the most compelling information came from a 15-year-old girl called Betty Clank, St. Petersburg, Florida. Now... She used to spend her afternoons trawling through frequencies on the family's shortwave radio. Mm-hmm. She always had a little notebook when she did this because she used to write down the titles and lyrics from songs that she actually liked. So while she was listening, she recognised a voice on the radio. The voice said, This is Amelia Earhart. Please help me. For the next two hours... Betty made notes as the signal faded in and out. Mm -hmm. She heard the words New York City. She wrote it down along with the words or what sounds like it. She put that in her notebook. Now, radio signals can bounce off of the atmosphere and go all the way around the world. Right, okay. If you have that sort of thing, it's very it's not like a, a normal radio signal. It will go in, fade in, fade out, you know, yeah. especially on shortwave. So this is the kind of radios that these people were using. Great big things that you know Yeah. Almost the size of a cupboard. Because people didn't have televisions. So they had the radio. So this was it, yeah, this was their entertainment. This is an interesting thing. On Nikamaruru, there is a large reef, like we've said. There was a shipwreck there at the time. That shipwreck was called the Norwich City. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're on a somewhere and you ha- you don't know where you are, you're going to have to give a distinctive landmark, aren't you? Mm-hmm. What's better than the name of a shipwreck? Yeah. Now, Norwich City... Which is how we'd pronounce which it. Which is how we would pronounce it. Amelia, being American... Would have pronounced it Norwich City. Yeah, Nor yeah, Norwich or Nor yeah. Which on a crackly radio frequency New York City. Yeah. Norwich City. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Like I said, it was taken seriously. Gardner Island as as it was then was flown over in the early days of the search. But the search report stated there was no sign of the Electra or habitation and so no physical landing could have taken place. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the years since, several searches have taken place on the island and its surrounding waters. Nothing has been found that conclusively proves they made it. There. They made it there. I mean, human bones were found on the island. Uh, a shoe was found on the island. A sextant and a metal plate. Uh, the bones have turned out to be male. The female shoe was the wrong size for Amelia. The sextant came from a ship that uh, had uh, provisioned there at some point. But if they'd managed to get there, they could have survived on that coral reef for a few days or a few weeks. Yeah. They'd have died lack of water or food. To be honest, we will never actually know. The International Group for Historical Aircraft Recovery, and it's called TIGER, T-I-G-H-A-R, which was founded in 1985, continues to mount expeditions to Nikamaruru, stroke, Gardner Island, in the hope of finding any evidence. Hmm. 
Robert Ballard has been involved in this, the man that found the Titanic yeah, and the Bismarck yeah. and all that. So this, they, they have taken this quite seriously over and the years. Edmund Fitzgerald. My personal opinion, I reckon Noonan miscalcul- miscalculated the headwind. They used up more fuel than they anticipated. With the overcast conditions, it was made him difficult to ensure that Amelia even maintained a proper altitude. Thus, her fuel consumption would have been... Not, she wouldn't have been able to maximise the fuel consumption. The radio messages were hard to understand. Earhart didn't know Morse code. When she made her final check-in, 19 hours after 19 hours of flying, her exact location was unclear. She could have actually been anywhere. Yeah, she pretty much... I tend to go along with the original Navy's thing. She simply ran out of fuel ditched in the sea and either died in the crash or succumbed to exposure or yeah. even the sharks that are in the area. I mean, because to be honest, the Indianapolis went down in the same area a few years later, the USS Indianapolis. Yeah, but do sharks, I mean, sharks don't really attack humans. I mean, they attack them, but they don't, they don't eat humans. They just tend to have a mm. nibble and go, oh, I don't really like this and then swim away. Um, but that nibble's enough to kill you. That's... Well, yeah, well, I tend to think I would agree with you, with the one exception of the USS Indianapolis. Well, what's... I'll tell you about that one. I'll do that one for you. How about that? Yeah, hey? is that is that people dying to sharks? Part of it, yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. See, I, I mean, I, I would agree with you. I think realistically, um, that seems the most logical explanation to to the whole thing. You know, the, the facts are she was running out of fuel. She said she was running out of fuel. She didn't know where she was. The fact that she was unaware of, of you know, her surroundings, they couldn't pinpoint it exactly. It's, I mean, the thing is, in the South Pacific, there are so many islands. Mm. I mean, there's there's stories that she, she downed it in an island or downed it, swam to an island and was eaten by cannibals and things like <laughs> that. And you've got... Um, if I'm if I'm right, there's an island in the South Pacific that has killer crabs. That crabs that are that big that they eat humans. And yeah, I mean, there's they're not, I would they say, are not that big. They are extremely plentiful. Um, they will eat anything that washes up onto the beach. And that island is called Nikamaruru Gardner Island. See, so she could have been eaten by crabs. <laughs> she <laughs> could know? have been. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the most consistent mysteries you just don't know of of aviation yeah and and it's still going on today yeah i think that's because really interesting the malaysian flight 370, 370 yeah. disappeared in exactly the same area 8th of march 2014 mm. things are still going missing in that in in the pacific yeah you know it's a vast area of nothing nothing yeah i mean i i mean my biggest thing, and, and obviously I, I mentioned this you know, before, but my biggest surprise with this was, obviously, I mean, I know Amelia Earhart. Most, I think most people would, would have heard something about her um, and know bits and pieces. But I was always under the impression that she disappeared over the Bermuda Triangle. That was always my, because that's like, the, yeah, uh, it's it's yeah, Bermuda it's Triangle not. type things. Yeah, yeah, but it's not. It's the opposite side of South mm. America. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So it's um, I mean that that was my my wit. The, you know, that was my one thing that I found quite strange um, from what I what I knew. But I think um, I think the story itself is is awesome. I mean, like you said, she's one of at the time was one of the most famous women alive. Um, the fact that you know we're talking nearly a hundred years later, or you know ninety years later, and they're still searching for her, yeah. is is quite impressive. One day they will, one day they'll find what remains of the aluminium Electra. Yeah, they'll wash up on shore somewhere, or yeah. it'll be something they'll find. But it's one to look into. Yeah, and it's yeah. a it's a very interesting story, and it's a very good mystery as well. One that uh, you know, like I said we we just don't know. Just don't know the answer. Yeah. So, yeah, let us know what, what you guys think. Um, do you think she was eaten by crabs? Uh, or did, did she just simply run out of fuel and crash in the ocean like we think? So, 
I would say that's probably the most likely. But yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very good story. It's a very interesting part of history and, and something that I find, although has sort of a, a tragedy end to it, it's it's more, I would say it's more upbeat than some of some of the podcasts that we do. Um, it's quite an interesting one and it's uh, definitely uh, definitely better quality than the last one we recorded that day. It certainly is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so I hope you guys enjoyed that episode and... Uh, we will be back with you for a very, very special episode next week. Um, so for all of you who have sent your questions in, we will endeavour our hardest to answer those for you. But yeah, thank you for joining us. And thanks again, Dad, for, for a, another awesome snippet of history. Uh, we shall uh, see you next week. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool too. With an ice cold cold brew, and not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a drama coach to be an IT guy. Yeah, I'm having trouble logging in. I'm not buying it. Say it again. This time with feeling. I can't log in? Come on, man. I want to feel your struggle. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. Now, like your life depends on it. I can't log in. Yes, we'll make an actor out of you yet. For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit GEICO.com local today. When you love riding a motorcycle, you want to ride it everywhere, even getting a dental checkup. Mr. Carter, wouldn't you prefer the chair? I'm fine on my bike, Doc. Well, let me know if you feel any discomfort. And when you love saving money, you want to save even more. That's why GEICO makes it easy to bundle your motorcycle and car insurance. All done, Mr. Carter. Remember to brush, floss, and lubricate your drive chain regularly. Kickstart your savings with GEICO Motorcycle. Bundle and save on the things you love. Bundling home and car insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbors are probably already doing it. But who? They may drop little hints like... Beautiful day out. Even more beautiful since we saved by bundling our home and car insurance with GEICO. Or... Yard work is hard. Much harder than bundling with GEICO, which was easy. Or it may be even subtler, like... Speaking of burgers, we bundled our home and car insurance with GEICO and saved a bunch of money. Bundling is easy with GEICO. Just ask your neighbors.